My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. Alex Winter skyrocketed to stardom in his early 20s thanks to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, the blockbuster movie he starred in along with his pal Keanu Reeves. Rather than pursuing more mega hits, Alex grew disillusioned with the movie Business, but not with visual storytelling. He has since directed music videos, TV shows, movies, and most notably, for me at least, a series of documentaries that have propelled him into the forefront of those exploring the nether regions of the internet, Napster, the Silk Road, cryptocurrency, all that good stuff. What's got him on our radar today, however, is his new HBO doc, Showbiz Kids, an insider story that he is well-equipped to tell, both for personal and professional reasons. Showbiz Kids is airing now, but the news of a new Bill and Ted movie, reuniting winner with now megastar Reeves, has got the internet buzzing. So we have a lot to talk about, but uh, let's start with Showbiz Kids. Welcome, Alex Winter. So good to be here, David. And I don't know if we're divulging how long you and I have known each other. <laughs> Hello, I know, right? Glad to say that, in fact. Yeah, it's been a little while, so it's really nice to be here. Yeah, but even when I met you, you were already well on in, in the course of your career. But prior to that, you were a showbiz kid yourself. Yes. And we've heard stories of how you know kids like Judy Garland, Elizabeth Taylor, and many others were mishandled and maybe even abused at a young age. Though in those days, people didn't seem to really talk about it very much. In a way, Showbiz Kids is a perfect film for you to make. You're in showbiz, and you've gone public with your own experience as a young actor on Broadway. So what is the genesis of this documentary? Is it more personal, or is it just because it was a great story waiting to be told? When did you start thinking about it? Okay, yeah. I mean, it's kind of both to make a documentary and there's such a, an intense commitment of time and psyche that I don't tend to embark on these things unless there's some personal motive uh, or urge and a story that I think actually could be told and should be told. Some really great issues don't really uh, lend themselves to kind of a narrative format or you look it over and think, I don't really know how I would wrap my arms around this. And this one is obviously the most personal because it's my story. It's very autobiographical. I'm, it's, I'm basically telling my story along with the story of the subjects uh, through their stories and through the stories of other working children, which was really the idea. I've been wanting to, to tell a story in this space for a long time. I first started working on trying to get this documentary off the ground about 10 years ago when I was starting on the Napster doc downloaded. I pretty much concepted out what I came, which was telling the story through a small ensemble spread ac across time and letting them speak honestly and intimately about their experiences and using that to track the experience of being a working child all the way from 
entering the business, being in the business, coming out the other end of the business, and then transitioning into adulthood. That was the structure that I'd kind of always seen. It's been a long time in the process of being made. I was really, really grateful that we got to make it and that I was able to make it the way I had envisioned. Uh, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes it shouldn't happen. But in this case, I think it was the right way to, to tell the story. I'm sure you also thought about putting yourself in it because, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I, before actually seeing it, I was expecting to see you in the film. I imagine that was something you thought about. Yeah, it was something I thought about uh, and something that I was poised at any point to do. My editor, Wes Cadwell, and I had a media bin filled with my stuff and didn't want me in the film. That wasn't how I envisioned it. But um, doxer fluid exercise, and I, I didn't know going in if this idea I had of, of telling the stories without the intrusion of the filmmaker was going to work. But it did, and every time we tried to put me in, it was very invasive and didn't uh, allow the story to unfold the way it wanted to. And, and what I mean by that is that there are documentaries that are about a filmmaker there are documentaries where the filmmaker is kind of an inextricable part of the ensemble. And then there are documentaries where the filmmaker is kind of the audience proxy and, and physically guides you through the story like a Michael Moore movie does. And I did really did not want any of those three. I really felt strongly that, that I was making a, a film about the timeless nature of this experience and the universality of that experience. And it's very difficult to create a feeling of universality when you have the kind of God's eye view of the filmmaker posing themselves on the story. And that was the thinking, and I, and I felt very strongly about it, and I'm really grateful that we stuck to it, because I think, for me, the film works largely because of that. No, it works great, and it's moving, you know, as well at the end, because I didn't really know what to expect, and, uh, you know, and it turned out to be this very serious story, uh, you know, on another point, maybe to you know ask you later, are there any happy stories of child stars? You know, but you spoke with Evan Rachel Wood, Mila Jovovich, Jada Pinkett Smith, among others, Todd Bridges, Henry Thomas, and the, and Cameron Boyce, who I thought was so cute and you know so poignant that he passed away right after, even though you know it had nothing to do particularly with the subject, as far as as we yeah. know, right? Yeah, it was a medical thing. Yeah, medical thing. So did you know the stories of the various people you pursued? You know, is this stories that you've been hearing over the years that people talk about privately in their, you know, at homes with their friends, uh, but generally they don't go public with it to this extent? A little bit about how you found the people and, and their stories. Sure. I didn't know really any of their stories in detail. There were a couple of the subjects whom I'm friends with so I knew a few of the subjects quite well. Henry Thomas, Mila Jovovich. I've known Mila since she was quite young. Henry and I made a film together in the late 90s called Fever that I wrote and directed that he starred in. and We spent a lot of time together. And I knew a few of the other actors just from being in the business. And Mara Wilson had written a book. So, you know, in a sense, I guess I knew Mara's story the best of all. But I didn't know Mara and I hadn't spoken with her privately about her story. But I didn't really know any of their stories because it's it's not the kind of thing that people tend to talk intimately about. And and the thrust of the doc, and I shared this with every subject that I asked to participate, was 
to be willing to be intimate. And I made it very clear that I wasn't looking for gotcha stories. I wasn't looking for shock value. I wasn't just looking for them to trawl the worst of the worst. In fact, some of the anecdotal, more ephemeral things that people would share intimately, I think are, are amongst the most revealing. In fact, it was a pretty revelatory experience to interview these people on a number of levels, not the least of which, despite having gone through a lot of, of stuff myself, positive and negative, and being a child actor, I was a little less resolved than I thought I was in terms of, of the cathartic experience I had talking to these people and sharing our experiences with each other and how similar those experiences were. And do you think this is still going on today? Well, if you're talking about abuse, of course. Yeah, it's a, it's a human nature issue. It's not an institutional issue. So there will always be abuse. There's pervasive abuse in every corner of every society in the world. We tend societally to focus on, on institutions, oftentimes, I think, because there's a hope that you can clamp down on behavior within that institution, whether it's the Catholic Church or the sports world or, or the, the entertainment industry. And, and those are good things to do. I don't, I don't look down my nose at them. But of course, you're, you know, you're putting a fire out in one room when the entire house is on fire. These issues are pervasive. They're, of course, as pervasive today as they were before. The things that have changed that are better, that are evolving, is, are, are fairly recent. I mean, there are child labor laws that have been put in place that have helped situations since you had Judy Garland and Baby Peggy in terms of work hours and, and the way children could be exploited financially. But the issue of sexual abuse, which is, you know, as you know, not what my film is, is fundamentally about, but it goes into it in quite some detail, that's really just being dealt with now for the very first time in any meaningful way. And that's really only as a result of the Me Too movement and this ability to have a more public discourse around these issues, which to my mind did not exist before hardly at all, other than a handful of organizations that were set up to, uh, to try to deal with this issue. It's interesting that the other examples you mentioned, like sports and church and entertainment, those three particular areas lend themselves to contact with minors, adults and minors, whereas very few other industries I could think of where that is the situation. You know, for Hollywood kids are a lot of work, right? Underage, they have all these special uh, laws to allow that and, and things that on and off the set. You would think that there would either be more attention paid there, as, as we are for the church, for example, now, and sports. But, you know, in entertainment, is a little bit harder because there's no, like, church, official church, and there's no, like, all these official athletic organizations that can lead the charge. Hollywood or entertainment is unique in that respect. Agreed. The thing that will that that is helping and will help, of course, is is communication and acceptance. I think we're we're getting better at communication because of Me Too. I think we actually have a ways to go as far as acceptance is concerned. And and what I mean by that is the fundamental nature of this issue and the prevalence of it. I don't think has really been accepted culturally yet, especially around children and especially around boys and the pervasive nature of male children and the sexual abuse that impacts them is still pretty taboo. And uh, the, the statistics are actually staggering for how pervasive it is, but there's very little acceptance around that. And, and of course, you know, the other place where children are is schools. And the other place where children are is at home. 
Um, and you will sure, find that sure. the statistics are exactly the same both in schools and at home as they are in the entertainment industry and churches and gymnastics. So it's, it's really a, a human nature issue and it's a pervasive issue and we're getting there. It's, it's a, it's a slow moving train. It's just a huge debt we owe to Toronto Burke and the, and the Me Too movement and the headway that's been made as a result of that work. Yeah, and uh, just the emotional issues as well, psychological, that contemporary story where you follow that family around that they're trying to get their kid into the business and they keep going out and, and nobody wants to hire him. And I felt so sad because to me that was like, uh-oh, this is not a happy ending to this story by any means. You know, the kid has convinced himself that this is what he wants to do because he doesn't want to disappoint his parents. How did you feel like watching that? I'm sure you picked up on a lot of that. Well, these are experiences that we all had. Everybody starts where Mark is. You know, Mark is, is the kid that you're referring to. And it was very important to me to cover two families, a family where the child was just entering the business completely green and a family where the child had been successful for a number of years already and was kind of cooking along in their career to show the, the disparity between those two experiences. I had both of those experiences. I was Mark and I was Demi. Uh, Demi Singleton is the, the girl who's been on Broadway and TV and movies. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So we all start there. And, and every mother is, is Melanie. And I really wanted to dispel to a degree the myth of the stage mother that's just this kind of shrieking psycho that, that is, and those, ex- <laughs> they exist, but from personal experience, they're, they're, they're somewhat anomalous. And uh, usually it's, you know, someone who really has their kid's best interest at heart and they're navigating this world somewhat blind and it's confusing and it's, it's a little bit fear engendering. Um, so to be honest with you, I, I had a great deal of empathy and, and still do for them. And you really don't know what's going to happen with someone. You know, Mark could come back next year and, and book the lead in a show. It, it, there's a lot of kind of preconceptions that we have uh, that are often dispelled. But I, of course, you know, Will Wheaton's story is very specific about the fact that he did not want to be in the business, that he felt his mother did push him in. And he had a lot of, a lot of issues uh, growing up around that and the feeling like he'd never really been able to experience his childhood. But there are happy stories. You know, Mara Wilson loved being in shows. She was really felt like it was what she wanted to do. She was great at it. She's transitioned into an incredibly successful adult life, as has Will, to be fair. But she doesn't look back and regret those days at all. And, and my, my experience is similar to Mara's. I mean, I, I was on stage at five years old I did not want to play sports. I wanted to go to tap dancing class. And so my parents let me do that. And I was professional by nine and I was on Broadway by 12, 13. And I was absolutely exactly where it's like a kid who plays basketball who's could not be happier because they're playing basketball. That's how I felt on stage. There was a full spectrum of experiences. And I wanted to show that spectrum to your point. It's, it's not just sexual abuse. There's there's emotional challenges. There's family challenges. It's you can, the kid can get messed up. The parents can get messed up. The relationship between the kids and the parents can get messed up. There's so many component parts to this experience. I was really uh, looking to show all of those. Would you want your kids to be child stars or would you let them if you felt they wanted to be child stars? I mean, I have three boys and the way that I 
approached the situation and both my wife and I are in the business um, and both of us have done a lot of work with kids as it happens. But the way I approached it as a, as a dad was if I had a me, right? If I had a kid that all they wanted to do was perform, then I would be supportive. If I had a kid that just watched Nickelodeon or Disney and got an Instagram account and was like, I want to be famous and you know, you guys do this stuff. Why can't you find me a role? No, that's not going <laughs> to, that's not going to happen. And then, of course, if I had a kid who had zero interest in it whatsoever, um, I would, you know, be very supportive of them not following in our footsteps in any way. As it happens, I mean, my my two older kids are kind of well past this being an issue. My eldest is in college and he's an adult already. But my youngest, really, those are not his passions. He he likes watching stuff. He likes that we're both in the business. Um, he has other interests and things that are driving him. So I haven't. I haven't had to face the dilemma that my mother did. My mother had a real dilemma on her hands. She, you know, she was in the arts. She was a, a, a modern dancer and a professor of dance at a university. Very different area of the arts than what I did, which was, you know, really entered the entertainment industry. And I, I don't think she was mortified, but I think she was felt completely out of her depth at the point at which I was suddenly booking a giant Broadway show. And obviously, our lives were going to completely change, and I was going to do the show end the run on Broadway and then take it on the road on a national tour. And that was King and I with Yul Brynner. And I remember her being on the phone all night and calling every friend she had and just trying to determine whether she should let me do this or not. And, you know, she really wrestled with it. And she was right. My life did change, you know, irrevocably um, from that moment on. It was a fork in the road that I have never, I've never come back from. And uh, that's a tough call for a parent to make, I think. You know, like Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in a road, take it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, we took it. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on to this, another subject that of yours that I find fascinating, that you've been thinking about for quite a while now, is this whole dark side of the internet stories. Mm -hmm. How did you get fascinated by all of that? And is that just a distraction that ended up going, you know, down the rabbit hole, as they say? Yeah, probably. I really became fascinated with computers and the internet from the beginning, and especially by the time there was an internet, which in those days was pre-web. You had a modem, and for those younger folks out there, you had a modem which was very, very slow, which connected to a computer which had almost no power whatsoever. It had the computing power of, of a calculator or a wristwatch, basically. And the internet in those days was a, a collection of bulletin boards. You know, it just looked like text, almost like very crude email. And you would communicate with people all over the world. And there were different areas of the internet that focused on different subjects. You could go into a, a whole group of people who were just talking about film, philosophy, sex, religion, books, you name it. And the discourse got incredibly deep. And... I became a very big part of those communities in the late 80s uh, and into the early 90s and made a lot of friends there, um, found a lot of interesting stuff going on there. It was uh, anonymous if you wanted it to be, which I found very liberating. I was kind of blowing up as an actor in the Bill and Ted movies at a certain point in there, and it allowed me a place to go and and feel kind of safe and and disconnected from Hollywood and the kind of public image and all of that stuff we kind of talk about in the Showbiz Kids documentary. 
of not wanting a spotlight aimed at your head at all times. And so the internet was kind of a refuge for me. It was a, a place where I, I could find community. I could talk about everything that was going on in my life, uh, whether anonymous or if I felt safe enough, you know, de-anonymized. And so as years went on, I eventually became a big proponent of Napster when it appeared. It, it was very clear to me that it was much more than a music stealing service that Sean Fanning had really envisioned the first global connected internet-based community. And it really was. There's an order of magnitude leap forward from anything we'd had before in terms of the amount of people that were connected online at, at a single time that could communicate with each other. Uh, that was just a revolutionary thing. And I, and I was aware of the ethics of it. I didn't discount them. Uh, I knew what it was going to do to the record industry and, and that there was a reckless thing to do despite the aspects of it that I very much liked. Telling Sean's story was my kind of foray into telling stories in this space. And I found that I had a lot of friends in that space who had become either powerful or had done a lot of innovative work. So I encouraged me to keep going. What are you looking at any of that today? Is there still shit going on? Of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of shit going on. The communities online, the anonymous communities online, a lot of them, like anything else, there's a bubble. And there was kind of a Bitcoin crypto bubble. A lot of people got interested, then got bored and moved on. Speculators moved in, kind of ravaged it, They had their way with it and moved on, kind of left it to the people who were serious before who were going to continue to do serious work, you know, same with the blockchain and things like that. And, and, you know, these are technologies, and I say this a lot, that at their root are very mundane. They're really not sexy. Uh, they, they have a purpose. There's a lot of people who just dismiss them and, and just, you know, but I think what they're really dismissing are all the scammy, phony aspects of them. The, the people who are doing real work in those areas just kind of ignore all of this stuff and ignore the noise, the highs and lows, and keep moving. There is crime still going on online, like we made a film about the Silk Road black market, and there are black markets online. In some ways, they have dwindled. You know, I've always said there's as much law enforcement in those communities as there are customers. The internet is a tool, which is really all it is, is a, a very good place to create community. And there's no better example of what a lot of us who are proponents of internet-based communities have been touting for decades. There's no better example than how these communities have saved our backsides during this pandemic. You know, I communicate with my mom via Zoom. Zoom is, is a natural outgrowth of the technologies that Sean Fanning invented, the technologies that came from the BBS news groups before them. These are all evolutionary products that, that grew up with a lot of people poo-pooing them and waving them away and saying they were all nonsense. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are grumbling on a daily basis that this is how they have to communicate. And obviously it's not ideal, but it's pretty great. And it's been an absolute lifesaver for you know, the medical community, for schools, and just for families and friends, for recovery organizations, abuse organizations, it's, it's therapists. Um, we, really would, we really would have been in much, you know, much deeper trouble had we not been evolving all of these communities over the last chunk of years. These cutting-edge technologies that you, I think, referencing here all came sort of out of you know, the underground or you know, whatever you want to call them, the illegal at one point. So are you suggesting that that's where a lot of innovation is actually coming from today? Because I think one of the criticisms, you know, we hear of Apple just getting richer, but not really innovating anymore. 
yes, Zoom is a great example of something new and wonderful and powerful. But as you noted, it came from all these people working outside the law, more or less, to create something. Absolutely. And I I don't have a, a kind of romantic notion of that, but it is a fact that contraband and extra legal innovations often drive giant seismic changes in culturally. And that's been the case for thousands of years. So it's still the case. And the technological revolution was started and driven by a, a small band of very bright, but, but also anarchistic somewhat, certainly pro-privacy and anti-authoritarian, not necessarily anti-government, but anti-totalitarian, anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian people. And there is a inarguable connection between the growth of technology and a kind of political activism that is at the root of those things. And that, is, that has long been fought by the media and by government because it's distasteful. There's been this desire to, separ- to try to separate the political ideology or the, the revolutionary ideology at the root of most technological innovations, however they're co-opted, ultimately, what we call the uh, status quo internet. It sounds grandiose. It is, it is completely true in my mind that you would not have a giant building that a- Apple now occupies if it wasn't for Sean Fanning at 18 years old, uh, who was poor and completely self-educated, creating Napster in a, in a broom closet that he was sleeping in. And that there's a direct line from Napster to the iTunes store, to the iPhone, to the iPod, to the giant explosion of what brought Steve Jobs' company back from the brink of complete disaster, which is where he was when he convinced the record industry to hand over <laughs> their entire business model to him. And thus, Apple was born and everything that, that grew f- from the iTunes store. So the same can be said for, for many technologies. It's a distasteful fact, but it, it, it remains a fact. True. You could even mention the origins of the internet from the whole 60s, you know, LSD generation, yeah. uh, and, and that whole group of people. Yeah, the cypherpunks, you know, the, the manifestos that were created from the 60s through to the 80s. Some of these people are very close friends of mine. Some of them are no longer with us. These are manifestos that seemed absolutely insane at the time they were written. And now they're just taken at face value that it's the world we live in. So are you still engaged in in exploring these areas? Are there other projects that you're looking at around this subject? I'll always be interested in this world. I'm, I'm not currently developing a documentary in this space, so I'm always open to doing one if I find a really good story there. I was, I was kind of poking around at doing something around the QAnon world and a couple of other things that, were, that, that are in that space that I moved on from. I didn't find narratives there that I thought were compelling enough. But I'm certainly involved. I didn't use the Silk Road to, to buy contraband, so I've never been you know, interested in the dark side of the internet in, in any meaningful way other than as a place to study. But the relationships that I formed in those spaces are, are still people I'm very, very close with. Yes, and, you know, and, and it's quite a jump from, from the technological cutting edge to Bill and Ted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your alter ego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to take me a second to regroup. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there's really something 
magical happening there. The new one is called Bill and Ted Face the Music. I, I haven't, I've, I've seen the clips. That's about it. Uh, but I did see that at the Comic-Con, Kevin Smith was raving about the film as something that, you know, we need right now. It's the right film for the right time. Surprised, a surprise to hear that kind of reaction. I think you were kind of smiling when he was talking. <laughs> yeah, I was really grateful for Kevin's reaction. We've, we've had that response generally, which has been very encouraging for us. We really put a lot of effort into making a film that we believed in creatively and that was first and foremost entertaining and didn't take itself seriously, but that did convey kind of a sincere message of, of hope and of friendship and of family. Those are kind of the roots of the, of the idea that was at the heart of what Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, who are the screenwriters of all three films, what they had in mind when they first pitched Keanu and I the idea of doing this, which was about 10 years ago now. None of us had ever really thought about making a third movie. We had stayed very close friends and spoken quite a bit. You know, we all talked to each other over the years. I, I see Keanu a lot. I see a lot of Ed as well. But it just really wasn't a topic of conversation until they kind of, they fell upon this idea that, that it was a very clever idea and just seemed like it would get funnier the older we got, which turned out to be prescient because it took us another decade to actually get the film off the ground. We feel very good about the film. And, and you know, for people who are Bill and Ted fans, I feel confident that we have made a Bill and Ted movie first and foremost. And for people who aren't, they may enjoy it and uh, they may not. It's, it's a classic. There's no question about it. You and Keanu met at that time, right? When, when you started the film. Prior to that, you really didn't know each other and you've remained close friends all these years. I was just curious, the camaraderie and the way you guys you know, sort of play off each other, is that something that continues off camera? You know, have you been doing this shtick for all these years when you were hanging out together and being Bill and Ted? Well, the thing is, we're very different people than those characters, obviously, but even even substantially were different. Uh, temperamentally were different. Culturally were, were radically different. We're both East Coast. We both come from pretty intellectual, artistic families. And we both had theater backgrounds. We both read very similar books. So I think what we had in common when we met, when we were auditioning, was not that we were like-minded to the characters, but that we were like-minded to each other personally. And I think we neither of us had really met anyone in Hollywood that we felt that way about at that time. People felt very different for me. I was a New York, mostly New York bred actor by way of London and the Midwest. And uh, he was from Toronto and had been doing theater and mostly in, and work in, in Canada. And, and we came to LA and, and we were like, oh, I, I get you, you know. <laughs> uh, so we really became friends for that reason. I think we kind of stuck together and then we ended up in booking the roles quite a bit later. The audition process took quite some time on that film. And so we became very close friends and we remain very close friends. He's really like my brother. He's one of the closest people to me in my life. And we've known each other a very long time. We've been through a lot of ups and downs together. Life is life, right? So there's a, there's a huge difference. And there's a big difference in the way we interrelate as Bill and Ted. And we didn't really know what that was going to be like. We did a lot of prep. We were excited to do it. We did a lot of script analysis and work on the script up till when we were shooting. But it really wasn't until we were on set in front of the camera doing our thing that we kind of looked at each other and were like, this is super fun. Like, I forgot how fun it is to act with you, you know? 
and the physicality and we kind of finish each other's sentences. And, you know, I know, I kind of know when he's about to give me a look. So I give him a look back. A lot of that stuff is instinctive at this point. And you don't have working partnerships with a lot of people like that. I was, it was really nice to kind of fall back into that and find that that vibe was still there. But so you never really did shtick like when you're hanging out, like for just, you know, playing off each other as the characters off camera. We have our own shtick, you know, <laughs> you know, we've known each other long enough that we, we make each other laugh anyway. And that shtick is, you know, is very much the same as it was 30 years ago. And, and, you know, it's like any good friend you've had since you were young, where you have a shorthand and, you know, you can, you know, what's going to make that person laugh. That remains. I mean, maybe what I'm saying is too abstract to convey, but it, the, the, the way we interrelate and the shtick we have as Bill and Ted is very different than the shtick we have off camera and in our personal lives. And it was fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was fun to no, kind I get of that, of course. that. Yeah. I think that comes through. And, I, you know, to me, this is really what the key to the success of this film. It's that you guys like each other. And it sort of comes through, and we like you. It's watching these two guys that you sort of like, whatever the hell they're going to be doing, something weird and, and silly. But it's fun hanging out with them. It's kind of a stoner movie without the weed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because people say the, the two misnomers that we get a lot, which is I don't care about. You know, I don't care about things like canon and stuff. I know people should, and they do, but I, I really don't. But people are like, oh, what was it like playing the sort of surfer stoner guy? It was like, well, Bill and Ted are from the valley, and they've probably been to the ocean once in their life very briefly. They don't surf, and they've certainly never touched a drug. They're like 12-year-olds, really. You know, the way we play those guys is like as if they're about nine, nine or 10 years old, and they're, they're virginal, and they're, they're innocent. And that's just the way we play them. It, you know, it doesn't mean that it has to be viewed that way, but it's just how we come at the guys. Part of the mantra of the film seems to be so like prescient at the same time. I don't know what the world, the state of the world was when it was being written or the notion that be excellent to each other could be, you know, something we all need now more than ever. And certainly, and party on. Yeah. You know, David, I, I, you know, I hasten to say that it's the film, a, a film that we need because it could come out and everyone could be like, thanks, but no thanks, right? I have no idea how it's right. going to do. But I can tell you that, I mean, the guys wrote this thing, they wrote the idea for this thing for 10 years ago when the world was in, and this country was in such a better place. And so it wasn't written from the standpoint of the world is falling apart, the country is falling apart, and everyone is so divisive and at each other's throats. So it's really was kind of extraordinary because the world is even, I mean, in the last 10 months or a year since we shot it, it's just everything has accelerated at this alarming pace in every facet of our lives. It's become even more prescient and it's almost disturbingly so. I mean, when you see the film, I mean, it's, it's really about all of those things, about not being divisive, about the, the, the earth needing to be healed, about needing to be empathetic to your fellows and to, and the need for everyone to, to come together and that that's really the only way to, to, to move forward on this planet. So I'm grateful that we're putting that message out in the world. It is not with any political agenda. We had no freaking idea. They had no idea when they wrote it that this is where we would be. Um, it is really just coming from a place of, of you know, the characters and, and the world of Bill and Ted. But it's sincere. You know, who knows? 
Right. Well, it's a message, obviously, for all time, but it seems to be more necessary now. Yeah, exactly. That it really yeah. has been in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, the mission has stayed the same, the mission to unite the world. Unfortunately, we have been united in this very unexpected way through the virus, but nonetheless, it has made, you know, the global consciousness much greater than it was before. Yes, agreed. Yeah, and obviously it's a universal message and mankind is needed to hear it, you know, humankind is needed to hear it from the moment we got up on our hind legs and started making stuff. So it's uh, not going to change in that way. And I, and I just hope, and I know this sounds a little bit glib, but I, I just, I really hope that people enjoy the film and it puts a smile on their face for 90 minutes because that's in essence what we sought to do. Yeah, 90 minutes would be huge, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm optimistic. I'm really yeah. will. Look, I do look forward to seeing, it. and I, and I think you know, just for all those reasons, you know, we need like a silly movie, you know, basically yeah. right now, that we could yeah. rally around. Uh, yeah, and the message is good, but we're not done yet with you because you know, had everything been as expected, you would have another project out, or, or maybe you do your Zappa. Yes. Uh, documentary, right? That was scheduled for South by Southwest, but we know that was canceled. And therefore, uh, what's up with the film? Well, I think I can start to talk about this. We were really completely shut down by the, the pandemic. Um, it was a very big independent movie. I, need, I don't normally make films with independent finance because I normally know exactly what I'm doing going in and I go and I find my distributor and I sell it to them and I make the film that I had in mind and we put it out into the world. And in this case, I had so much archival material. I had everything that Frank had ever collected going back to his, his being a baby that the editor, Mike Nichols, and I you know, looked at this material like, okay, I had a game plan. I mean, I come from narrative and I, I usually write out almost a script with these films and it changes a lot, but I have a kind of a three act structure and a story in mind and all those beats laid out. And I had that for this, but we looked at each other and we thought, well, to do this material justice, we really can't prescribe a hard structure on this thing at this time. So very hard to sell a movie to a distributor when you're telling them you don't know what, <laughs> what movie you're going to make. So we found the financing, thankfully, of great people who got behind this film and uh, great point media and, and Robbie Halmy, who was just a, a huge huge supporter of what we wanted to do and was very was great all the way through but look i was going to go to the south by southwest festival which i love dearly i've world premiered two other movies there and it's one of my favorite festivals in the world we were going to do a big rollout there we had we had like 15 other giant international festivals lined up i was going to do a massive tour all over the world and obviously that was shut down about a week before we were heading down to austin and that put the kibosh on being able to sell the movie which is how you normally sell independent documentaries so we we sat on our thumbs for a couple of months and then we tiptoed back out into what was left of our planet and uh, started seeing if anybody wanted to put the movie out. Um, so, <laughs> Very funny, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it was like the, you know, the Omega Man, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, hello, hey, I got, got a script. Movie. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, anyone out there? And like shapes creeping out from under, you know, basements. You know. People starting to bid for it. Yes, war. sniffing at it and, you know, kicking it around a little bit. Uh, then, then the sun would go down. We'd have to all go back to our respective bunkers. I can't say who it is yet. We haven't made a formal launch, but we found it absolutely fantastic. One of my very favorite 
film companies in the, on the planet. I'm super grateful that they, that they love the movie. And we are looking to put the film out, I think, in the late fall. And I will certainly be making all the requisite announcements as we can. But I am, I am very happy to say that we are, uh, we are sold and going out into the world. And I'm really, really happy with this doc. It was the hardest, hardest thing I've ever done. It's a very complicated story. He's a very complicated guy, which is why I wanted to do it. Uh, he's a very paradoxical person, and that makes good docs, but it also makes tricky narrative storytelling. So uh, it was a real mind-bender to cut, and uh, I'm really, really happy with it. So I just want to get it out and have people see it at this point. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait. Thank yeah. you, Alex Winter, for stopping by. Have this chat today. Appreciate it. It was as as amazing as I knew it would be. <laughs> you know, it's really good just to, I mean, it's just nice to talk to you, David. <laughs> yeah, same here. You know? Let's so. make it a regular thing, man. When yeah. the Zappa comes out, we, we'll do another one. Yeah, I'd love to. Zappa love version. To. All right, yeah. man. Take care. Thank you. Great. Thanks, David. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.